Father, we come now to you to ask you to do that which only you can do, and that is to take your living and active and powerful word by the work of your Holy Spirit and apply it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to understand. And Lord, would you change us for your pleasure and glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're starting a new study. For those of you who are visiting, we just finished the book of Colossians, and today we begin in the book of Genesis. And when, as a session, when we discussed what we'd do next, back when we were in Acts, uh, we talked about Genesis. That was something that I I wanted to do because I, I think it's so foundational. And yet the challenge is it's foundational, so most of us have heard it. We know these words. And if we're honest, sometimes we can think, how is this going to be a sermon? Uh, Sometimes this is more challenging than those closing salutations that we dealt with last week in the end of Colossians. How is that going to be a sermon? And yet, we're looking just at the first two verses today, um, because this is really the foundation for all that we believe. This opens the door to our understanding that God has not only made us and made this world, but he has revealed what he has done, who he is and what he has done. This first verse is almost a thesis statement, not only for Genesis, but really for the Bible, that in the beginning, God, he was there in the beginning, and he established something for some purpose. He created us for some purpose, this world for some purpose. He didn't have to, he didn't need to, but he did it. In the beginning, God. And what we need to see and understand is that purpose is our hope. That purpose for which he created the world was to put his redeeming love on display through the glory of the sufferings of Christ, giving us his grace and mercy in our salvation. It was to put his glory on display. Isaiah 43, we were created for his glory. So our lives matter. The messes that we're in matter. The questions that we have matter. Our doubts matter. Our fears, our hurts, our lives matter. And it's important for us to go back to the beginning. As Maria in The Sound of Music said, let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. And I realize every time I quote a musical, I'm going to be asked to turn in my man card, but that's the first thing that pops in my head, and I know that some of you now will be singing that song for the rest of the day, uh, if you're anything like me. Uh, the beginning that we start with here in Genesis is not just the beginning of the world, it's our beginning. We are rooted back here in the very beginning. But even saying that kind of gets us off track because we have the tendency, no matter how much we fight it, to make everything about us, don't we? And while it is our story, we are a part of this story. It is ultimately God's story. And it's imperative that we remember this, that the story begins with God, and he's not only the narrator, he's not only the one telling us the story, revealing it to us, he is the primary actor. We are a part of his story. But the good thing is, we're part of his story. And it makes our story all the more significant. It makes our story matter. Our significance, our worth, our value is not intrinsic in us. 
And it's a good thing it's not because we can all have those days where we think, why does my life matter? What am I here for? Nothing I'm doing is working. Everything is falling apart. Everything I'm doing is failing. If you've ever had one of those days, you know what I'm talking about. And yet we come back to the beginning and we see that in God, our significance, our worth matter because our story is rooted in his story. It's important for us as Christian, Christians to remember this is God's story, to know it, to understand it, because it's his story that gives us purpose and direction and meaning in life. And to fail to acknowledge this, to fail to understand this, is like the psalmist captures that about the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's a temptation for many, to just erase God. If I erase God, I remove all accountability. I remove all fear of judgment. The Bible tells us that's such a foolish thing to do. God was in the beginning. He established the beginning and the end. Isaiah 46 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Our existence is His story and our story is His because he made everything. All of this is his. Our very lives are his. Everything he's made for his glory. So in Genesis is important and it's foundational. The good news for us then is not only do we have a beginning that's told about here, but the Bible goes on to tell us the end as well. That even though in the beginning, and we see the tragic news come very quickly in the fall of Adam and Eve, that there is a hope announced at that point that continues to unfold through the message of the Bible, and that is the redemption of our lives. Why do we need this? Well, because our lives. Our lives are a mess. We live in a world that is broken and fallen and at war and enmity, and there's injustice, and we experience this on such a personal level as well. We long for redemption. The Bible is that story, the story of God's redeeming love demonstrated by his grace toward us. I'm probably going to say that a few more times today. I want us to really get that. The Bible is not a history book, although it certainly teaches us history. The Bible is not a moral book, although it certainly teaches us morals. The Bible is not an owner's manual, although it certainly tells us how to live our lives. The Bible is first and foremost primarily the story of God's redeeming love. It is His story. That story that is unfolded before us in the opening words of Genesis and that story that's unfolded before us on this table this morning. And so as we hear God's word now, may we remember and prepare our hearts that this is what we're coming to. That the very opening words of Genesis and everything following all comes to this to the cross, to the work of Christ on our behalf. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about Genesis. This is in his commentary that I'm pretty sure was just lifted from a sermon because it's so pastoral. He says, you come to me and say, I'm unhappy. I'm conscious of a conflict. I'm in crisis. I need to read this with a British accent. What's the matter with me? And the Bible says, in the beginning, God, as if it has forgotten all about you, but it has not. The only way to understand yourself or your life is to start with God, and right at the very beginning, the Bible takes us there. If you're not clear about this, you will go wrong everywhere else. So let's be clear about what this is. 
and let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God. We've already said, we read this in Isaiah 46, and it will come out again and again as we look at other passages. God established the beginning from the end. God created space and time. When the psalmist talks about stretching out the heavens and the universe like a tent or like a canvas, it's that image of stretching out space and time. God's not in space and time. He's outside space and time. He's not limited by that. And yet he established these patterns that we now live in as a canvas on which to paint his story. In the opening words of Genesis 1, we're introduced to the God of the universe, the triune creator. The name of God here, Elohim, is in the plural. And while there is an argument that that's made as a sign of honor, I think there's an equal, if not more, a stronger argument, rather, that this is revealing to us the Trinity. Because in the few, just a few words down, we see God come and say, let us make man in our image. Certainly, we know the Bible clearly teaches that God is one, that he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Shema that Israel repeated over and over again. And yet, the Bible clearly teaches that he exists in three persons. There's a number of passages we could look at, but think of the Great Commission, some of Jesus' final words before he departs, saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture also teaches us that all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. There's so many passages that point to the Father. Just to pick one, Isaiah 42, 5, thus says, God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. The Father active in creation. The Son, did we not just see in the book of Colossians? We could think of the opening words of John's gospel, but but let's consider the, the verses from Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created for, uh, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And of course, the Holy Spirit, right here in verse 2 of the first chapter of Genesis, that he is hovering over the face of the waters. The very first words of Scripture introduce us to the triune creator, God. Not only do we see the Trinity, but we see the eternality and the self-existence of God. Right here, in the beginning, God. The psalmist captures this in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's not bound by time. He is self-existent. In Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Look to the heavens, not a star that we can see, and not the myriads upon myriads of stars that we can't see goes unnamed. God knows them all because he created them all. He is infinitely wonderful and beyond our understanding, and yet he comes to us in the opening words of Genesis and tells us who he is. In the beginning, God. He also tells us what he did, created the heavens and the earth. To say that he created the heavens and the earth is the author Moses wrote Genesis. It's the author's way of saying he made everything. The heavens and the earth, that was an all-encompassing, it's what's known as a mirrorism, taking two things that are contrasting and using them in a way to represent an entirety. Everything here and everything out there, there's not, you know, what's left after everything? (laughs) Nothing. He made it all. Heaven and earth, from my observation, from God's observation, everything was made by him. And we see this echo in John's gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. A verse that many of us memorized as children. Without Nothing that was made wasn't made by him. There's no exclusion there. Everything was made by him. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain it even further, that not only did he make everything, but he made everything from nothing. The term ex nihilo, out of nothing, is what we use to describe this. Hebrews 11.3, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God didn't take clay and make a pot. He didn't even take molecules to make clay to make a pot. Or he didn't make atoms or subatomic particles or whatever the lowest thing that we discover is to put all that together. He made all of that. He made it all. He spoke everything into an existence. And frankly, I don't think we can comprehend this. Or if you can, maybe you can explain it to me, because I can't imagine nothing and then something. My, my brain just won't do that, because we always start with something. We're finite, we're limited, we're within creation. God made it all. And then in verse 2, we get the perspective of the earth, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The perspective of the author shifts from this universal view now to this geocentric view from the place where he sat on planet earth. And here we see that the earth has not been, it's been created, but it's not yet formed. It's formless. It's without void. It's in essence a blank canvas. We can never understand fully how God works. Again, we're limited. He's infinite. But he has condescended to us through his word, and he often uses word pictures. He gives us images to help us understand. And as I've read in some of the passages, like Isaiah 40, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent. We see this language in Job. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in Isaiah, that this image of God stretching things out like a canvas upon which he would paint. This is where he would tell his story. These are human terms to help us understand. 
And after this big canvas of space and time was stretched out, the heavens, the universe on which to write a story, he creates this particularly special canvas that at this point is formless and without void. It's planet Earth. And it's here that he would place his most prized possession, his people, you and me. It's here he would begin unfolding this amazing story of grace here on earth. And while we can never fully understand all of the details of creation and we'll continue to bump up against this uh, inability to comprehend as we work our, th- our way through these opening chapters of Genesis, he has still given us these images and this insight to understand as much as we can. The image unfolds. It's without form. It's void. The Hebrew word for formless is tohu. It's, a, it's an expression of wilderness, barrenness. The waters, you th- think of this, the waters covered the deep. The earth and the land, the, the, the land and the waters that would later be separated on the days of creation hasn't happened yet. It's just a, a sphere of water. There's no light yet that's been made. It's a, it's a picture of darkness and You may wonder, well, how can anyone work in the dark? The psalmist explains to us in Psalm 139, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You understand that on an elemental level, it's because God made all of this, that these restrictions that you and I have, where we couldn't work, God is not limited in any way. And the word for void that explains the emptiness of it all, the lack of living things, plants and animals, is the word bohu. Nothing has yet been made. So you have tohu and bohu. And you notice they kind of sound the same. It's because Moses is writing this, this, this poetic form under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bringing these words together to capture this, this image of there's, there's nothing here. There's, it's, it's bare and it's empty. In fact, both there's only two other places where these words are used together in Scripture, and in both cases, Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're both used to describe the judgment of God, this complete emptiness that God was able to accomplish in judgment. And yet here, it's a story of preparation. It's, it's like the farmer who goes out and breaks up the earth and tills it. It's this erasing for the purpose of creating the purpose of making. The image unfolds further, explaining the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It's interesting that this word that's used here, and if we think about it, how is the Spirit revealed in the New Testament, like at Jesus' baptism? He comes down in the image of a a dove, right? And here these words that are used in Genesis 1 are used in Deuteronomy 32 Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters or hovers over its young, spreading out its wings. So we have this image of the Holy Spirit protecting, nurturing, in a sense almost uh, caring for as, as a bird would, the planet. The Holy Spirit is not in all of the universe, obviously he's omnipresent, but in a unique and special way, he's not hovering over the face of the deep on all the other planets or all the other stars, he is uniquely hovering over the deep of the planet Earth. Because this is where God would tell his story, the story of his purpose of redemption. That's the foundation that's being laid. The story of God's amazing grace through which he would show his unending love 
by redeeming a people for himself. It's the seedbed that's being laid down for the rest of Scripture. From this seedbed would spring the one who was promised just a little bit later after the fall of Adam and Eve, the one who would crush the head of the deceiver, Satan. It is the one from this seedbed who would spring, who was promised to Abraham when he was told, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It's the one who would come and bring that blessing to all the nations of the earth. It is this one that is our hope, who brings us good news, our Savior, Jesus Christ, God revealed in the flesh, because He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. And it is He that we come to today to not only remember but be fed by in this table. God created the heavens and the earth so that He might put His glory on display by redeeming a people for himself. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He wasn't lonely. There was perfect fellowship and love in the Trinity. God created all of this to display his love for his glory. And that love is given to us in his son who died for our sins, who died in our place. The story of Genesis is the story of God's great love. And this table that is meant to nourish us and build us up in the faith brings that love to our senses. It brings it to our taste buds and to our nostrils, and we feel it and we see it. It brings it before us. This same God who spread out the universe like a tent to create the canvas on which he would paint the story of redemption now spreads out this table for us today to feed us with the hope that that story is the redemption of our souls, the salvation of us who are in Christ from lostness and judgment and the hope that we have in him for the future. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the beginning, may we be mindful of the end as well because we know that you hold all things in your hands beginning to end so that as we feel the weight, and sometimes it's a crushing weight of the the world the fallenness of our own sin, of our own fallenness. Lord, may you bring us now to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. That you did all of this and are doing all of this for a purpose. There's not one maverick molecule. There's not one episode or incident that we experience that's beyond your control. Indeed, you are weaving and doing all things together for our good and for your glory. May that truth come and rest in our hearts today as we consider the opening words of Genesis. And even more so, Lord, may it penetrate deeply into our hearts as we come to your table. Would you use this? Would you meet with us? Would you change us for your name's sake? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.